I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this is probably one of the most exciting times in agriculture for maybe two generations. I think it is electric out there. Hello and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by The Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. In each episode, we bring you the latest news from The Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today, we're joined by Sarah Langford, London barrister-turned-regenerative farmer and author of the acclaimed book, Rooted. Eva, hello. Hello, Sophie, and hello to our Lodgecast listeners. Yes, it's been a minute. Welcome to Series 4, and thanks for downloading the podcast. It's really great to be chatting with you once again. Yeah, it's been a while since our last series, but it's great to be back. And we have got some really juicy, in-depth conversations to bring you this series. Mm. We've actually shaken things up a little bit as well. We've still got everything that regular listeners know and love, the fact-off competitions, the quizzes and chats with expert guests. But this time, we're going to be a bit more beaver and tie the series together with a specific theme. This one is beavers and farming. Yes, well, my goodness, there are so many conversations that we could have under this banner alone. So our four upcoming episodes will focus on different areas from what to do if you're a farmer interested in seeing whether your land might be right for beavers, to the good, the bad and the ugly of having beavers on your catchment. We'll also unpick a little of how we actually finance nature restoration, getting into the fiddly bits of schemes designed to help farming and conservation work together for nature and for people, and shining a light on how things actually get done. Oh, phew. Well, plenty to get on with. But before we get beavery, how have you been lately, Eva? (laughs) What have you been up to? Uh, I've been mainly moving house. So I'm now around the corner, as you know, in uh, in Devon. Hello, Devon. Um, Lovely, Yeah, so massive uprooting for me in in contradiction to Sarah's rooted theme. Lovely. See what I did there. And are you putting some roots down? Do you feel like you're rooting? Yes. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a stronghold of Bishop family here, so nice. I have Bishop clan connecting with the roots there. But it's yeah, no, it's great. It's a lovely place to be, and of course, I'm around the corner from the River Otter Beavers now. So beavers mm. on the doorstep, as it were. Love finally. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, talking of beavers on the doorstep, I was on a on assignment for Beaver Trust last week and doing a recce of a site with beaver dams washed out after the storms, and I had a spectacular slip up in a particularly wet beaver wetland, which I suppose is a a good sign that they're doing their thing and I ruined a pair of jeans. Um, (laughs) So that's my my latest, a fell over in a beaver wetland. Head first, can we just picture it for the listeners? Great. I wish, not quite. Um, (laughs) I think (laughs) I did film it though, because I had my phone out filming the epic audio of squelching in wellies through a fresh beaver wetland. And being a true millennial, had phone yes. out, trying to do sort of something good for social media, completely stacked it, and, uh, <laughs> and here we are. Wow. <sighs> <laughs> so, Excellent. I mean, last time we, we spoke, it was way back in the new year of 2022. Beavers have had, well, I mean, they've had lots of news, of course, but they've had a pretty good time, haven't they? The government has finally given wild beavers in England protected species status, and that is no mean feat. Yeah, it's amazing. They're now recognised as both native and protected, and which means that it's illegal to deliberately kill, injure or capture beavers or disturb their dams and lodges and burrows without a licence. So it's, it's a small but really important milestone um, in their restoration to Britain. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, it's interesting to kind of explore what this protection actually means, because I spoke to a couple landowners a few months ago, and they assumed that this protection suddenly meant that beavers could actually be released into the wild. But that's not the case. Um, it's, it's a major milestone in law, 
and in their legislation paperwork in the beaver filing cabinet somewhere in deepest, darkest parliament. (laughs) (laughs) But it's only one step on the road to full beaver restoration and fully restoring the population of beavers in this country. As a wild animal. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they were recognised in Scotland and protected in Scotland in 2019. So this is England sort of playing catch up a little bit. Um, Worth Mm. noting that. But the next steps are for Natural England to produce a wild release policy with the management framework that that requires alongside it. And then and then we can look at more, um, hopefully look at more wild releases of beavers happening because the majority are in enclosures at the moment in England. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a really great moment and something that a lot of people have worked very hard towards. So it's a huge achievement for the beaver um, restoration community. It really um, is. 1st of October in England. But yes, so... That's the Beavery News. Now let's get into it with the podcast guests. Today, we are speaking to the wonderful Sarah Langford, who runs a farm with her family in Suffolk. This whole series has been inspired by the number of emails and messages we get at Beaver Trust from farmers and landowners wanting to know more about the process of getting beavers on their land. So we wanted to shine a light on how that happens and explain a little bit of the steps involved. So actually, Eva, to to help you with this, I'm going to assume the role of a farmer. Excellent. This little role play. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to slide into Beaver Trust info at DMs. Welcome, welcome to all. <laughs> a free inbox to contact. And I'm going to say, I'm a farmer. I live in Sussex. I have a river running through my land. And it's a catchment that is bordered by a number of different farmers. I love the idea of beavers. I've read a lot about beavers. I've heard a lot of good things. How do I go about getting beavers onto my land? What do I do? So there are a couple of steps. Yeah, good good, good to hear you're interested to start with. That's excellent and welcoming. <laughs> Interesting to hear if you've chatted to any of your neighbours about it so far and what they might right. think too. But to start with, we need to recognise that beavers are wild animals and have to be managed accordingly and take, taken seriously. You can't just throw beavers out anywhere. So what we would do is we'd have an initial discussion and we'd hook you up with our restoration team and they would look at the hydrology, what water's available, what the general context is that we are talking about. And if that seems a suitable site, then we would send some of the team out to do a feasibility study, looking at ecological suitability, retention options. So if an enclosure is required, what the catchment might look like and what the impacts might be. Are there any trees that you don't want to be brought down? You know, what's it going to take to bring beavers back here and what might their impacts look like? Once that is all assessed and if you then choose to carry on and if it's an enclosure you'll need a full fencing specification and sadly that can be one of the most expensive parts of bringing beavers back is building a fence to keep them in because it needs to be a really um, high quality fence pretty robust yeah pretty robust then we would progress to license applications so any beaver release wild or enclosed needs to happen under license and will will continue to do so after any new legislation and, and policy on that. So um, we would help support the license application. We would then wait for it to be returned. If that's positive, um, then we can look at translocating beavers to your site. And that is done by experts following a sort of comprehensive veterinary health screening process, uh, which Beaver Trust undertakes in collaboration with Five Sisters Zoo in Scotland to ensure the animals are healthy and safe to travel and don't bring disease to their new enclosure. Um, And then uh, there's the great moment of excitement, which is the beaver release itself, which we often report from Beaver Trust um, because it's a really, it's a wonderful moment, a sort of great um, day a step back in time to releasing this previously native species. So yes, and then, but then it doesn't stop there. So there's loads of post-release support to, um, which is a collaboration really between Beaver Trust and the landowners and ensuring the animal health and welfare continues to a high standard and uh, monitoring the site's changes. So yeah, it's quite a straightforward process, but it needs to be managed with expert input. And um, that is very much what Beaver Trust has set up to do. Would you like me to put you on touch with our restoration team, Sophie Farmer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> I'll send you my availability. Um, so just to recap, I guess, as a farmer, you can't just chuck a pair of beavers anywhere as much as you may want to. Beavers are mammals. They're the second biggest rodent in the world. And just like us, they have specific requirements, such as an appropriate water source, suitable habitat to raise a family. They need loads of food to forage. So feasibility studies are an essential requirement to see whether your land could actually accommodate 
beavers for the long term? Because obviously we're we're not just looking at sort of short term, aren't beavers lovely? Isn't it great that England has beavers? We need a robust, functioning, sustainable, long term breeding population of beavers across England for them to actually provide the ecosystem services that we, that we know that they can. Mm, mm. And actually, at the moment where we are, as we need more and more people to come forward with potential sites where we can release beavers. Yeah. So um, looking into Slide it. Slide into first the DMs. Step. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> as the millennials say. <laughs> anyway, that is a little bit about the process. And we will, I'm sure, touch on more of it later in, in our series interviews. But let's talk to an actual farmer straight out. It's time for our first guest for series four of the Lodgecast. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast barrister, farmer and acclaimed author Sarah Langford, whose brilliant new book Rooted explores the current situation farmers face in the UK and the changes to the industry over the last few generations. Her grandfather and uncle both farmed, but she headed for life in the city as a young adult before returning to life in the countryside to run a small family farm with her husband and two young children. Sarah, welcome to the Lodgecast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real treat. So we're going to start with our fact off. You're well acquainted with the Lodgecast. Glad to yes. hear it. So um, <laughs> you know how, how we, this rolls. It's a bit of friendly competition and light knowledge sharing. And then we will ask you to cast your vote. So I'm going to start with mine, um, which is about snow tunnels and wintry beavers. So beavers excavate snow tunnels and have the most extraordinary sense of smell to aid their tunnelling. And the fact is that they have been observed to dig a 20 metre long snow tunnel almost directly to a stand of birch trees under the snow in order to feed. Cool. It's oh. pretty impressive. It's <laughs> pretty impressive. Targeted digging. <laughs> yeah. Like a beeline for the birch. Um, <laughs> beaver line, if you oh, will. Oh, nice. straight in. For my fact, we're off to America, and we're going to be looking at how beavers can increase landscape resilience to climate change. So a recent study led by Stanford University, published in a journal called Nature Communications, found that beaver dams can actually increase nitrate removal by up to 50%. And this has enormous potential to improve water quality and downstream biodiversity and all that good stuff, which in Britain is at an all-time low, as we may have seen with sewage and all that stuff. Important fact. I like that, Sophie. Mm, not quite as cool as snow tunnels. That is very hard. It's a very hard call, guys, because it is. I've got my advent calendars set up. You know, the tree is ordered. So for seasonal <laughs> timing, the snow tunnel would win. However, <laughs> she's hedging. <laughs> I had a meeting last week with a group of farmers locally to me in Suffolk, and the object of the meeting was to try and sort out the river we've all got tributaries that run through our farms we've got the river Deben that runs through ours and we all know what the problems that have caused our kind of river stagnation in Britain to be so I mean I'm gonna I'm afraid I'm gonna have to go for Sophie's because I love a stat apart from anything <laughs> and also it's something that um I have seen when going on kind of cluster walks in other parts of the country, how something very straightforward, which is like a woven hazel, like mini fence, uh, helped stop nitrate leaching mm. from a field in a way that I did not, you know, I looked at it and thought, that's a lovely craft project they've got on the edge <laughs> of their field. And then the ecologist that was in our group said, but if you look either side of the end of the fence you can see there's this huge kind of swamp of nettles and that is where the nitrates have run off and they are fertilising this big nettle clump and it isn't happening along other areas because this little hazel barrier has actually stopped nitrates running into the running off the field. So, um, you know, rather than weaving a couple of kind of hazel hedges, if we could get beavers doing it instead... Oh. All the better. All the better, indeed. All the better. Well, I'm delighted. That is what they do well. Thank you, Sarah. Well, so let's get into it then. <laughs> let's cover some of your background and set the scene. So you started your career in law and became a criminal and family barrister. Mm. Then you started writing books when you were on parental leave with your two children. And then most recently, mm -hmm. you moved with your family to run your husband's small farm in Suffolk. So if we were to boil it down to one headline, 
lawyer to farmer is a pretty unusual path. Can you give us some of the meat of the story? <laughs> like, how did how did this all come about? Well, I think I'm a kind of good advert for never having a five year plan because <laughs> I have just pivoted to whatever life threw me. So yeah, I was a criminal and family barrister for nearly a decade. And I lived in London, but I travelled to courts all over the countryside, mostly representing uh, criminal defendants. The family sector, it was mostly kind of parents whose children were being removed by the state. So kind of the real front line of court work, I guess. And then I did a really unhelpful thing if you're a barrister, which is to have children, because they don't go very well with being in court every day. (laughs) And so it was... While I was pregnant with my second son, they're quite kind of close together, that I met the woman who's now my literary agent and she persuaded me to write my first book, which was called In Your Defence, which was a kind of narrative non-fiction account of 10 years as a barrister. And while I was writing that in 2017, my husband lost his job. And so we were kind of two ostensibly unemployed people with two quite small children My youngest son was eight months old, I think. And so we thought we would move to Suffolk where he grew up and where we'd been going back and forward for the duration of our our marriage because he worked there in part and just have a break. The idea behind it was to have a break for reality, could I take some time out? Mm. And as these things happen, it, it turned out to be completely the opposite. And we ended up, we rented a cottage, which was a few fields away from the house that he grew up in. And those fields belong to his parents, as do just shy of 200 acres of arable around the corner. And we were there, mostly sort of not uh, try, trying to look for work. I was finishing um, In Your Defence. And so we asked if we could kind of take on the management of it. And it, I think, like so many of these things, when life chucks you something unexpected, I think it was exactly what we needed at that particular time, which was to go from a pretty intense, pretty intense, fast paced life in the city where it felt very important. It felt like it was the center of everything to the edge of a field, which at the time felt like the middle of nowhere. But of course, it turned out to be proof that that was the real life that we were actually looking for. So that's how it happened. There was no, I'm afraid, design (laughs) to it. It just unfolded like that. It's often the way with these great success stories, isn't it? You find something that you're truly passionate about and it's and it's hits you out of nowhere. It's lovely. I'm stunned that you had time to write a book with two small young children and taking on a new <laughs> direction. Now, we're going to drag you straight into nature and beavers because the focus of this uh, podcast series is farming and beavers. And something um, I think I've picked up on some of your the research I've done new, uh, is your... Um, <laughs> the research that you did into differing opinions and different um, generations of farming and how they're approaching the challenges of today. And if we look at the beaver side of things, the first two millennia of farming in Britain were an increase at a time of increasing predation on beavers. And of course, now that and then to the point where they were no longer in this country, and now we're bringing them back. It's at a time when we're all trying to make more space for nature in our farming and welcoming beavers back as part of that for us. But how how are you finding it in terms of talking to people and on your own farm, making more space for nature and planning that into what you're doing? I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this is probably one of the most exciting times in agriculture for maybe two generations. I think it is electric out there Mm. at the moment. I mean, even uh, Will Evans, lovely guy who's involved in the Oxford Farming Conference, he, he wrote a tweet the other day that was just one line that said, I can't get over how exciting agriculture is at the moment. And in part, it is because a generational shift is happening. And there are loads of factors that, that play into that and why we're at such a tipping point. But over and over again, I keep meeting and talking to Farmers who are, I guess, are between the age of 30 and mid 40s, who are in the process of either taking on a farm that is their parents or their first generation farmers, who I think are really a really exciting group of people. And they are doing it 
they're doing it differently. And I think there's a reputation within farming, which is completely justified in some areas, that the older generation who are now in their, I guess, 70s, 60s and 70s, are very stubborn about this, don't want any change, are quite regressive. But actually, I'm meeting as many of the next generation who are saying, my dad is giving me carte blanche to Mm. do what we're doing. We're changing this, we're changing that. He's really enthusiastic about it. Uh, He's seeing stuff that he hasn't seen on the farm for three decades. He remembers seeing things. He remembers seeing these flowers or these species of butterfly or whatever it is, and he'd forgotten that they used to come here. So I think sometimes there is a stereotype in the wider domain about what farmers the farmers attitudes and actually on the ground whilst there's definitely still some of that and I come from a family where I've experienced that very close up I think there's a much there's much more optimism actually out there uh, in, in the change that is happening. Thank you it's, it is a really exciting time to be involved. Yeah it's really lovely to hear your positivity around it because so often we're so used to farming being framed in a negative context. Now, when we've spoken to you before off the podcast, um, you've described Mm. the river that flows through your farm, the River Deben, as a source of horror. And we know from statistics (laughs) and uh, surveys that have been done over all rivers in England that 100% are failing water chemical standards. And I think just 14% Mm. are classed as in good ecological standard as well. We know you're interested in managing your local river better. So what is actually happening to uh, improve the River Deben as a source of life for all the farms along the catchment that it flows through? And have you, we must ask this, being Beaver Trust, have you considered beavers as part of your farm one day? One of the great advantages of coming into farming when... Although I come from a farming family and my dad was a land agent for the whole of his career and I've got lots of friends who are farmers, I didn't know much either about farming or about ecological restoration. And so when you come in from that angle, everything is on the table. There's nothing that fits in this category of weird stuff or we don't do it like that. It's all to play for. But I also... I mean, I think I describe it in my book as muddling around in the heart, half-life of knowledge. I am fully aware how limited my own ecological education is. And that's why I think that um, collaborative working, where you've got farmers working with ecologists and wildlife groups or FWAG, is so incredibly valuable because there will be lessons learned on both sides. And I think many of the problems that we've had in terms of engaging farmers historically have been this quite kind of uh, polarisation of these two groups. And so in terms of our river, I wouldn't even begin to claim to be a river expert or know what we should be doing. I look at it, it's bright green and barely flows and is stagnant. And it's like that all the way through the tributary I was at a pub in Suffolk not that long ago and it had a sign saying to the river and I thought oh I'll go and have a look at the river and I turned up at the river and it was as green as the fields around it that's Um, tragic isn't it it? yeah it is and no one would disagree with that literally no person farmer farm worker a countryside liver would look at that and be happy with it so what we are in the process of doing is to form or try, we're hoping to get to apply for the facilitation fund, which has just been released by DEFRA, is to form a cluster group. And that is really a group of landowners that share borders, may have completely different farming practices, mm. may have different objectives or goals, but you hope that you come together with one particular objective in mind. And so ours is going to be sorting out the river. And we had our first kind of meeting last week and had no idea who was going to turn up. We just put a load of emails out and WhatsApps and we didn't actually give everyone a a huge amount of time, but we had 40 people come. And that was a kind of mixture of fathers and sons. And there were a handful of people from the Suffolk Wildlife Group, but also from Natural England. And it was a real cross-section of people. Maybe they won't all sign up, 
But the fact that they were prepared to schlep out in the rain on a Thursday afternoon and sit in a kind of cold, dark room and listen to some sort of words of hope is is extremely optimistic. So I think that those kind of collaborations, like cluster groups, mm. they're able to make land change on a really large scale. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of beavers, I mean, everything for me is in the why not camp. I don't know if you've been to Farm Ed in the Cotswolds, which is run by Ian Wilkinson, but it's an extraordinary kind of educational farm. And what he did quite early on was mimic what beavers do by making dams, re-naturalising kind of the water flow, digging a pond and making dams out of kind of stones that filtered the water and slowed it down on the way to the pond. And the consequence, both in terms of the wildlife, but also in terms of downstream flooding mm. of houses and villages downstream has been pretty immediate. So I can't see uh, any reason on the kind of literature that I've read and what I've seen why beavers shouldn't be the tool that lets us do that. I think the difficulty we have with some farmers groups is kind of tapping into this old divide between ecological groups and farmers groups. Mm. I think we're kind of at a new dawn mm. now. And as long as there's more humility than judgment, mm. then I think we will be able to to bring this together. I mean, they have the release of beavers in various other parts of the country has been monumentally successful. And yeah. I've it clearly works. It's a psychological barrier, I think, mm. rather than a practical yeah, one. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. And I think that that's something we'd love to ask you about a little bit in, in a moment. I think that what you've shown there is that there is, what you've sort of highlighted there is that there is a shift in the siloing of you're a farmer or you're an environmentalist and you're a this, that people are now taking an interest in their surroundings. It's much more community. We're moving, hopefully, we need to transition to more community-led work and living and I think the 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 turnout that you got at your farm cluster highlights that and hopefully you know it's something that Beaver Trust want to do is to support farm cluster groups in looking at whether their catchment is is fit for beavers and things like that so it's a really interesting uh, approach but I'd like to take you off in a slightly different direction because I think you've got some mm. expertise in this or some exposure to it we've seen um, farming subsidies change a little bit and even removed mm. as, as a result of Brexit can you give us a little insight into your view on to what extent these subsidies need to be a driver of environmental change and impacts on you know even even beavers and how we help bring the environmental good that we need that we know the people want and all the farming groups want to happen but they're so hamstrung mm. by old structures and and frameworks and mm. how do we from a farmer's perspective what's the route through that I'm going to break it into two different categories. One, which is land use and estates, places like NEP and so on. And the other one is working farmers, a third of which are tenant farmers. So a third of farmers will be working on land that is not their own. Yeah. And that has a huge consequence in terms of what they're able to do on it. Sometimes they might be on a short tenancy. And by short, I could mean two or three years. Mm. So in terms of being able to put into a long-term plan, it has to, we have to involve the landowners and not just the farmers. The majority of farms make no profit without subsidies at the moment. Yeah. And that sentence alone shows you how messed up the entire system has become. That we, our food, and the choices that we make around our food has driven a farming structure where people can't make enough money from actual farming alone to make a profit. It's absolutely staggering, isn't it? Are they choices or, are, yeah. or is this forced on us? But anyway, mm. let me not divert you, Karen. <laughs> if you've ever hung out in the chicken aisle in Sainsbury's and watched people just go immediately to the cheapest chicken, I think they are choices. I don't, I don't necessarily think they're informed choices mm. because none of our food is priced to show its actual That's cost. That's exactly it, yeah. And if, it, and if it was, our choices would be different if our food showed its, both its actual cost of making it, but also its ecological cost and its carbon cost, then people would be reaching, I imagine, for the organic chicken. <laughs> but maybe that will come. I don't think it can stay as it is. No. 
And so that is another element that's kind of doing huge movement after 20 years of everyone who knows about this saying, food is too cheap, food is too cheap. When you understand that the majority of farmers make no profit without subsidy, you have to try and put yourselves in the shoes of what that really feels like. And it feels very frightening. And it feels like at any moment, the whole thing could go under or slip away. And so in that situation, no one is going to take a risk. No one is going to risk a crop or income for something which they may well believe is of benefit. They just can't afford to. So the framework that subsidies exist on have to acknowledge that. And I suppose what I'm saying is, yes, money matters a lot. So if you create a subsidy framework that says to people, this is a significant sum that you will get if you either change this, do that, or a part of this project, that can be the difference between doing it or not doing it. And at the moment, we're involved, you know, we've got mid-tier stewardship on our farm, for example, that pretty much covers your costs. It's never supposed to be something that you make a profit out of. We're at the moment, there are three new hedgerows going in to our arable fields, splitting them into six fields. And once I've done all the um, sums on it, which I have, we're going to be paying out of our farm profits for that. Not much, but a little bit. So in order to have a very diverse hedge and not just a hawthorn hedge, and in order to replant the 90 trees, it's going to cost us more than we have got in stewardship grant. So you're never going to be able to persuade farmers who are already on the line economically to cross over that without money. Mm. It's just reality. However, I am not totally convinced that it's public money that needs to be doing this. Okay. Because... There is, at the moment, and this is where, you know, I agree with Manette Batters, who's chair of the NFU, um, in her view of this. There is a huge amount of private money. I mean, she talks about it sort of like swirling above your head. And whatever you think about kind of greenwashing and whatever you think about offsetting and all of the deeply problematic accusations that could be made about it, the reality is that there is a large amount of private finance that wants to find its home. And at the moment and I can't see this changing, farmers are pretty much the only industry that cannot just reduce their carbon emissions, but absorb them and cannot just change the way they, they work to make it less harmful, but change the way they work to make it enormously beneficial environmentally mm. and nutritionally and all the other consequences of growing food in a different way. So they are the kind of top draw in terms of where this money should go. Why on earth would you build a machine that takes carbon dioxide out of the air and tries to shove it underground when you can do that through growing plants? Mm -hmm. So there is both a a moral argument about should our tax money be going to something that private finance could go to? And there's an economical argument, which is that if, I don't know, McVitie's are going to, or whoever, Cadbury's, whatever pay five times the amount that the public purse could afford, it should be them, should it not? Because that will mean that farmers will be able to not just make up for the public subsidy money that they have lost, but possibly even increase on it. And if you've got, uh, and there are plenty of deals being done at the moment, it's a really kind of emerging market, both the kind of carbon market and the natural capital market. But now that you've got any kind of development that takes place, by law, those housing developers have to offset those biodiversity net gain credits somewhere. And rather than buying a plantation of spruce trees in Wales, they could be channeling it into paying farmers to change the way they do cover crops, do barriers on the edge of fields that have a river through it, all sorts of mechanisms by which they could dramatically impact their environment. So I think that's why it's such an exciting time at the moment. It's really hard to get that right. Mm. Of course it Mm. is. And we're in this terrible moment at the moment, which feels quite wobbly and everybody wants certainty. But of course, markets don't really develop like that. Mm. They just 
follow where the interest is. Yeah. And what I imagine DEFRA do not want to do is cut off the private market yeah. by paying for it. So I don't know, cover crops, they announced that part of Elms is going to be that they will pay farmers, I think it was like £26 a hectare, to cover crop. Now, most farmers will suck their teeth and go, well, what's this like, barely cover my costs for doing that. And a private private finance might have paid 10 times that. Mm. But they won't if it's being done already. Yeah. Because they have to, it has to be that this per, this farmer is doing something additional. Yeah. Mm. You're doing something that is different to how you would have done it. So it is an exciting time, but it's also a very difficult time because everyone's saying, we want certainty, we want a path. And of course, when things are moving like this, you kind of... It's very difficult to get that. Yeah. Yeah. And often with environmental gains, the, the proof is impossible to display. And that's the framework we're economically used to. Mm. How, how can you prove your trees are going to do this? Mm. And you, you, can't, you can't, can you, right? Exactly. So you, you have to have a framework that says, we're going to pay you to put this. We, we know that this works. We, this should work. So we're going to yeah. pay you to put it into trust against into finance. Yeah. 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 Thank yeah. you. That's a really interesting answer. Sarah, I'm really interested in your, if we backtrack a little bit, talking a bit about how when you were writing your first book in your defense your aim was to bring humanity mm. back into a conversation that had mm. slightly lost it and I really feel that you've done this beautifully with Rooted and when oh, I was reading gosh. it there are so many parallels um, that we're able to draw between beaver restoration in the UK and then the sort of quiet mm. agricultural revolution that's happening um, because both require a fierce embrace of change that can only really mm. be achieved with allowing those two big things to be a great leveler and to allow room for things like empathy and humility, as you said before, mm. from person to person. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your experience connecting with farmers all around the UK and about how that has informed your approach to farming? I guess I should start with my own family <laughs> because my uncle is the first chapter um, and in many ways, he is the archetypal farmer, by which I mean he is kind of large and loud and ginger and angry most of the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he is, you know, he thinks this is all a load of hippie nonsense and he thinks his job is exactly the same job that my grandfather had when he took on <laughs> their farm as a tenant in 1959, which was only five years after rationing ended. Hmm. So he took on that tenancy at a very febrile time where his job was to grow food, as much food hmm. as he could, in whatever way he could. And the government paid him to do it and encouraged him to do it. And my uncle Charlie took on the tenancy in the 80s when the landscape was beginning to shift and the country was dealing with huge uh, surpluses. I mean, the world was dealing with surpluses at the same time as it was dealing with famine, which of course is another example of how the food system is broken. And, uh, and, and then it had set aside, so it was paid not to farm by the government, but not for any ecological reason, but to try and stop these huge mountains of food that they had to store. So I included him he was really important in the book because he represents, I think, both the urban public's uh, idea of a farmer, but also he is, I mean, he has had a column in Farmers Weekly for 20 years. So he is sort of, I mean, he would love me to say. He's a bit of a celebrity, is he not? Kind of. <laughs> he's a celebrity in farming. He is. He is. I try to think of a sort of equivalent. I mean, I wouldn't go as far, like, it's not a Kardashian, but he's some kind of, <laughs> I was going to say he's like the Jeremy Clarkson, but now Jeremy Clarkson is actually a farmer, so that doesn't work quite so well. But yeah, he is, um, if ever I meet a farmer and they work out that he's my uncle, they always go, Charlie Flint's your uncle, <laughs> because it's sort of like they, they thought the man was mythical. And he has been, um, you know, he's been writing about this stuff in a very kind of pessimistic uh, or rather suspicious way for a long time and it wasn't all plain sailing and I talk in the book about the arguments that we had and how when he represents to me this kind of stereotypical farmer I represent to him everything that's wrong about the urban yeah. liberal who comes in thinking that they know best after he's been doing it since he was 23. 
So I think to begin with, in my research, I thought that the majority of farmers would sit in his camp. And it was only when I started talking to many more farmers and traveling around the countryside to the kind of length and breadth as much as COVID would allow it, uh, that I realized how wrong I was about that. And I really wanted with Rooted to get across the voices of people who didn't have a massive media platform, didn't have a huge Instagram account, weren't going on podcasts. They were just quietly getting on with this stuff because there are so many that are doing that. And they, are, they aren't kind of putting their hands up for awards and sound bites. They're just getting on with it because they think it's the right thing to do. Mm. And often it was the right thing to do economically as well, mm. because as the cost of inputs soars, artificial nitrogen is four times more expensive than it was last year, for example. It was often made more sense to farm in a way that worked with natural systems, which are free. Mm. And a lot of them had once farmed in a conventional way. And I think that was important as well. One of the biggest kind of, <laughs> one of the biggest needles in my uncle and other farmer's side is that wilding and nature restoration is seen as an extraordinarily privileged, mm. um, open to, only to the privileged. So my uncle will repeatedly say, well, you can only do it if your name's called Tarquin and you've inherited a large <laughs> estate. Is that his opinion on <laughs> beavers, do you think? Yes, I probably think it is that. Yeah, hmm. I think that they sort of fits in the same camp. And of course, it doesn't help when Boris Johnson just stands up and says, bring back beavers. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> because they are, I think, in the minds of some farmers, uh, without wishing to speak on their behalf, but this is the impression that I get, they're kind of twinned. Like, fine, if you've inherited a pile and you don't have to rely on it for your income, have beavers. But I've got to make money. Mm. I've got to actually make food and keep the right side of my overdraft. And of course, we know that the evidence doesn't necessarily support that. No, exactly. As I just said about natural system. But it's a psychological perception. And so I was really... I wanted no big estates in this book. I wanted no one called Tarquin. <laughs> and, and I wanted just uh, kind of farmers who had usually met a massive crunch point. Mm. So a lot of them in Rooted got to a point of having to a sliding doors moment where they were like, either I have to sell the farm or this all has to stop or I get the chance to do it differently because it's basically been razored to the ground. And I thought those stories were so compelling and so powerful. And I think that most people, even if you've never worn wellies in your life, will understand that kind of feeling of crisis and change mm. and the terror of it but the reward of it as well. Mm. And that's what I really wanted to get across. Totally. I think that's a fascinating um, perspective on it because as you say, with the Instagram and things like that and social media, that's often all people hear about actually is the people that are talking about it loudly. So you mentioned there, beavers can be part of the um, doing things better in terms of working with natural systems. How can we as Beaver Trust how can we encourage farmers to engage more with NGOs? Do you think that needs doing or is there enough sufficient engagement? How can we, you know, something that we would like to be able to do is approach people to talk about this and, and know that we're not trying to force the environment, environmental agenda on people, but we're there with answers and knowledge and expertise to help. How do we bridge that a bit? I think there's never been a more perfect time to try and do it. People are so open to it now and in a way that I just don't think they were maybe even five years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I do think, tied up with this idea of natural capital and those nascent markets that Thames Water or a water company will pay you to farm the field that their tributary runs through differently. For example, yeah. there are lots of people who are teaming up for those relationships. And that is new to the majority of farming it's hard to understand. I didn't understand this until I went into it. But in no other industry do you just kind of make stuff and know it's going to get sold. If you were a t-shirt manufacturer 
or a pencil maker, you would know who your market was going to be before you went and made all your pencils. In farming, you just grow it and a lorry comes and it gets picked up and it goes off to a global pile. And that has meant that you haven't had to engage with anyone else outside your sector. Not really. Now that is changing. People are much more enthusiastic about finding their own routes to market. We've converted our farm to organic. And part of that is absolutely finding a market before you put stuff in the ground, knowing where it's going to end up rather than after Mm. harvest. And so I think that that switch in working with people from outside farming is absolutely happening at the moment. And that's part of it. And so it's, it's it's a very good time for that kind of cross-pollination to take place. I think that um, money and non-judgental advice are basically the two ways in. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's a good soundbite there. Um, Sarah, we must ask you, because we ask as many guests as we can, have you seen a beaver in the UK? Only on a night cam vision, not in the flesh. Oh, a treat in store for you one day then. (laughs) I mean, they are, you know, they're sort of the most meme-friendly animals. <laughs> and everything I think of beaver, I just think of, you know, little hand-holding, floating, yes, yeah, very, it's the sort of thing, it's definitely the animal that I would like if I was, I don't know, in his dark materials. <laughs> That's my familiar. Very good. Don't you think? They're, co- they're extremely cool. Yeah, they represent a lot. I mean, I'm, I realise I'm preaching to the converted You are here. very much. <laughs> not really. We are the choir. <laughs> not really going to disagree with that. <laughs> oh, amazing. We're going to have to wrap, but it's been so brilliant to have you on. And I think, you know, we've scraped the surface of a, f- a really fascinating topic um, mm. for, for me and for hopefully our audience as well. And um, your expertise and insight has been invaluable. So thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Sarah. That's very kind. That's very kind. Thank you for having me. That was interesting, wasn't it? My goodness. Fascinating. What an um, intelligent lady. <laughs> but she's yeah. done her research and got such experience already in a short space of time. And it's very, um, I found it very energetic, actually, uplifting. Yeah, it was very uplifting. I particularly really loved her reiteration of the need for collaboration and cross-pollination and just the need for non-judgmental empathy and humility and kind of classic Mm. human emotions that seem to have been buried a little bit so yeah it was really really cool lots of hope for farming in the future talking of farming i have a quiz excellent long time no quiz long time Um, long time no quiz the quiz is a staple of the lodgecast and new listeners you're in for a treat (laughs) maybe So I'm going to ask Eva three questions, multiple choice, and Eva will get a score out of three. And this episode, lo and behold, it's a quiz about farming. So question one, are you ready, Eva? I am prepped. Excellent. With Google. Okay. (laughs) What? No. (laughs) How we laugh. Uh, question (laughs) Question one. Way back in 2015, the Committee on Climate Change stated that since 1850, we had lost 84% of topsoil in the UK. But how many centimetres are we continuing to lose each year? Is it A, 2 to 3 centimetres? Is it B, 5 to 10 centimetres? Or is it C, 15 to 18 centimetres? Well, there is only about, there is, a, there is only about that much topsoil. I'm showing it to the camera, uh, you know, 10 centimetres in places. Much? So what was the first right, option? Yeah. I know that we're losing a lot and it's a staggering amount and it's because, given how many hundreds of thousands of millions of years it takes to create topsoil. Mm. Um, what was the first option? It's A, 2 to 3, B, 5 to 10, C, 15 to 18. I'd say it's 2 to 3. I don't think we can lose more than that a year before running out next year. You are correct. It is 2 to 3 centimetres of topsoil are being lost each year. Very good. Still a lot of topsoil and we well can't done. afford to lose that. So. Amen. Amen. Good. Plants and barriers well to losing that, please, farmers. <laughs> please. <laughs> please. Question two of the farming quiz. How much of the UK land carbon stock is held within our soils? How much of the UK land carbon stock is held within our soils? Is it A, 67%, B, 95%, or C, 75%? 
I think it's probably 75. Ooh. 95? 95%. Staggering amount. Yeah. Okay. One point still so far. Can she claw it back in the final question of the farming quiz? Question three. In 2021, what percentage of the UK farmed area was classed as organic, i.e. where all chemicals are banned and natural pest control is favoured? Interesting. What percentage of UK farmed areas class as organic? Is it A, 5%, B, 3%, or C, 15%? Sadly, I don't think it's as much as 15%. I wish it was. Um, But I think it must be... Gonna have to rush you. (laughs) Gonna have to hurry. The clock is ticking down. (laughs) Oh, I'll say 3%. Oh, she did it. Two out of three. Excellent. 3%, which means a whopping 97% of the UK farmed area is conventionally farmed. Circle back to what Sarah was saying about the need to help people transition. Mm -hmm. And regenerative farming is a step forward to organic. Well, there we go. That is the quiz. Two out of three, a strong start for Eva from Series 4 of The Lodgecast. Thanks. Excellent quiz. Love it. Topical. Great questions. Thank you very much. Yeah, good. And that's it for this episode of The Lodgecast. Yes, please tune in again next week as we're joined by Sam Bridgewater and Sam Brian Evans from Clinton Devon Estates, a key partner in the River Otter Beaver Trial and an estate that balances both beavers and agriculture. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and make sure you've subscribed so that you don't miss our next week's conversation. For more from Beaver Trust, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Beaver Trust. And you can head over to our website, www.beavertrust.org and you can sign up to our free email newsletter. See you next week and thanks for joining us. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust.